Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. And this is it. This is our last episode of the year. And so what we're going to do today is look back over that year. It's a 2020 year in review episode. Yeah, here's what we're going to cover in this episode. We're going to talk about some of the high points and low points in terms of the stories we read this year. We're going to dig into some of the common themes and motifs we saw. These are all really coincidental and, and contingent just based on the batch of stories we read. There were a lot of really interesting ideas uh, in terms of themes and motifs that came about that I think surprised both of us that kind of allowed us to hone some of our understanding of, uh, I don't know, storytelling tropes and this pulp mode that we largely read in on Elder Sign. <laughs> uh, I, I really enjoyed that. And I and and I certainly feel as though, you know, my mind, my storytelling mind has been sharpened by thinking about a lot of the stories that we read. So I can't wait to talk about that. We're going to talk about some of the writing craft of some of the authors that we read. And then we're going to look ahead to 2021. But we're going to start out by taking stock of what we covered in 2020, uh, which I think we can all agree felt like, uh, I don't know, significantly longer than the average year usually takes. So (laughs) I almost feel like I've kind of forgotten things that we did at the beginning of the year, which in some ways is maybe a mercy. But let's uh, let's just look back and uh, talk about what we actually covered. So in all, we did 18 stories, which is fewer than we did in 2019, but that is because five of the stories were novellas that we did over multiple episodes. These were A Psychical Invasion by Algernon Blackwood, The Blue Flame of Vengeance by Robert E. Howard, Houses Under the Sea by Caitlin R. Kiernan, uh, The Graveyard Heart by Roger Zelazny, and then we, we finished up with The Gunslinger by Stephen King. And that all amounted to 11 episodes, but we did 13 episodes on on short stories. So the novellas were almost half of what we did this year. And what that meant was that we didn't really hit any particular author multiple times this year. I mean, we did, but not the way that we did in 2019. So the most stories by award this year really just goes to two people who were tied at two stories that we did. And that's H.P. Uh, <laughs> Lovecraft, where we did The Alchemist. Uh, and then we did From Beyond, which we did air in 2020, but we did actually record at PhilCon in 2019. Uh, And then the other writer who had two stories was Stephen King. We did Graveyard Shift and we did The Gunslinger. And, you know, if we need a tiebreaker, I I think it's going to go to King. I think King is going to win 2020 if we use the number of episodes as the tiebreaker because we did four episodes on him because we did three on The Gunslinger. And really, I think kind of meant in some ways then that 2020 was the year of Stephen King for Elder Sign. I wasn't expecting that, but it kind of was. We spent a lot of time on Stephen King this year. Yeah, and I'm really grateful that we did. We we talked about in Graveyard Shift how Stephen King sort of moves the locus of horror from this kind of aristocratic terror or monsters to the experience of the common man in the same way that, you know, Arthur Miller with Death of a Salesman moved tragedy from the heights of, you know, a person who is esteemed in society being brought down low to the common man, to those quiet tragedies of everyday life. And I and I really stand by that assessment. Of course, King was heavily influenced by H.P. Lovecraft, um, but also by, you know, monster movies he grew up watching, universal movies, which I suppose do deal with class in a certain way, but they're, you know, the Wolfman at least, or the Invisible Man, are dealing with a different class of people than you might 
typically see in horror until that point. And, and that, to me, was a really interesting revelation. The Gunslinger, I think, will always be uh, a book that I will return to. That That's a book I, I really just don't get tired of. And I hope we're able to cover the rest of the novellas in that first novel uh, in the coming years. Yeah, I do, too. And it's, it's interesting, though, of course, right, that you, what you're pointing to about what King does is on full display in uh, Graveyard Shift, but then actually totally undermined by by reading The Gunslinger, which is taking the original, you know, aristocratic story archetype and and telling a, a weird Western with that archetype. And uh, that is something we'll talk about later in the episode when we get to the themes and motifs. But I, I do want to talk about something else with The Gunslinger here, too, which is that we did a lot of mythos stories this year. That was something we talked about last year, 2019, that we didn't really do any mythos stories and that there were a lot of things in weird fiction that we just hadn't gotten to in 2019. And, and maybe two of those things were, I think, things that people regard as staples of weird fiction and maybe sometimes even regard as being all that weird fiction is, and we just hadn't done them. And really, one of them was mythos stories, or hadn't done much of them anyway. But we did three this year. The The Gunslinger by Stephen King is one of them, right? This is King's own mythos, which I think King fans call King's Dominion. Uh, we also did The Mask by Robert W. Chambers. That's the, the second installment in the the, the King in Yellow uh, story cycle, which uh, sometimes called the Yellow Mythos or sometimes called the Haster Mythos. Uh, that was very cool to do. And then we also did Houses Under the Sea by Caitlin R. Kiernan, which is our first real Cthulhu mythos story, right? Our first Lovecraft <laughs> mythos story. I mean, we've done Dagon on Patreon, but it's the first one that we've done on Elder Sign. Uh, we've done not actually by Lovecraft, which uh, was not our intention when we started Elder Sign, but I think really kind of maybe as emblematic of the way that we have done Elder Sign and what this show is that is is different from what other weird fiction uh, podcasts are. And what this all amounts to is about 15% of the stories that we covered were these mythos stories and 25% of the episodes that we did were these mythos stories. So this was also the year of the mythos for us, uh, although although we did not do multiple stories in any one of these uh, mythoses or mythoi, uh, still, <laughs> we did a lot of mythos stories. And I'm interested to see, too, Brandon, if uh, any of these three stories made it onto uh, your list of favorites or, or mine. We'll do that in just a, a minute. But a lot of mythos stories this year. Yeah, I really enjoyed covering that as well. I am glad, in some sense, for the way that the cookie has crumbled around our approach to Lovecraft and mythos. I'd much rather circle around Lovecraft, you know, being a really difficult and maybe unpleasant person. Somebody somebody who is an acknowledged racist by everybody who reads him, um, coming to his ideas through the lens of a writer like Caitlin Kiernan and seeing the power of those ideas uh, and and how they're used by other writers before we have to go into Lovecraft's own biases as a man and as a writer. I think maybe we touched on them a little bit in our coverage of The Alchemist, but his full-blown attitudes towards other people are not on display until you know later on in his writing. And when we get to that, we'll have uh, hopefully a backlog of other diverse writers who have found his ideas and been captured by them, um, but reject his stances towards, I don't know, race and women and things like that. Uh, I, I just, I think this approach is is really excellent and eye-opening uh, to me as a reader as well. I agree. We are going to have to talk about 
the issue of of race as it appears both in in Lovecraft and in in Robert E. Howard, and we might even just end up doing a special episode just about that. But we we got some bit of that on display in The Alchemist, except that it wasn't Lovecraft thinking about race; it was Lovecraft thinking about class, but still having this sense that that people who are unlike him are lesser than him and that there the differences between <laughs> the way that Lovecraft conceives of himself and the way that he conceives of other people actually kind of disgust him. We're going to get more of that. I mean, that is right there in the heart of his oeuvre. And as we get into it, we'll talk more uh, about that for sure. And this is something that actually came up when I uh, was a, a guest on another podcast this year. I was a guest on Plot Points where we did talk about a Robert E. Howard story. We talked about uh, a Conan story. And there was race and there was class in that story as as well. So people can check that out if they want. But also, it seems, you know, our Patreon supporters who are deciding what content we are covering have also not been really excited for us to do a whole lot of Lovecraft. He he did make it every time he was on the, the ballot this year, which really was only once because we had done the live show that we knew we were going to air, but only barely. That story came in last or second to last on that poll. So people are not super enthusiastic about him. Uh, stories that did never make it in the polls, though, is, uh, is kind of a, a long list. Uh, Robert Aikman has been on the ballots for almost two years now, uh, may never make it, though I will say that in the most recent poll, he did only miss by one vote. Uh, Clark Ashton Smith didn't make it this year either. Uh, Russell Kirk, uh, though we did do him over on Patreon, and I, I really love that story. That's actually one of my favorites that we did this year. And then M.R. James didn't make it, but he did make it in the most recent poll, which means he's going to return in February. That Russell Kirk story was a great uh, haunting story, a great ghost story, uh, and a great way to approach Russell Kirk, who was a major voice in, in uh, American conservative politics in the mid 20th century. Yeah, and we've got Russell Kirk still on the ballot because, you know, I don't take these stories off. I want, I want to give them a chance. It will be fun someday to, I, I, you know, if we can manage it, I think, to, to sort of pair up Russell Kirk with China Mieville and get sort of two polar opposites on the political spectrum and take a look at the way that they're doing weird fiction. But uh, that'll be looking ahead to 2021 or like 2027 or something. We'll see how that shakes out. Yeah, that would be so interesting. And and what I think we'd find, at least based on the one Russell Kirk story we've read and the two <laughs> China Mieville stories that we've read, is an interest in uh, maintaining uh, a sense of place or a love of place or a concern with one's place in uh, a, a local community on some level. Uh, and it's it's really fascinating how this idea of place is on both, you know, the progressive left, which China Mieville is maybe a part of uh, or was when in these stories looking for Jake and Russell Kirk's voice of conservatism, how this is something that grounds, I think, both of the sensibilities of these writers, at least as far as we've experienced. That might be one of the themes and motifs we do next year or uh, sometime to come. Uh, before we get to the assessment part here and talk about our favorites and our least favorites and uh, the passages that we loved and so on, uh, there are a few more things I want to say about taking stock, or really just one more thing, which is to say that we did also do three commissioned episodes on Elder Sign this year. And we actually had a lot of commissioned episodes across the network. These are episodes that we sell, that we make extra money for the network on. And so we're very grateful to have had these episodes. We're really so appreciative of the fact that this is one of the ways that people are showing support because it also lets us do some really cool things. 
and we did do some really cool things with those episodes here. We did uh, a special topic on weird fiction in role-playing games where we had uh, Brent Helt, uh, my co-host on Hanging Out with the Dream King, our Neil Gaiman podcast, join us here. Uh, I did a special episode then with just uh, Valerie Hoagland, who's my co-host on our Star Trek podcast, Lower Decks, where she shared her expertise as uh, someone who works in mental health. And we talked about weird fiction and mental health. And uh, I think that's a topic we're going to return to eventually. And maybe we'll get her back on the show to do that. I loved doing both of those episodes. And then, of course, we did have an extra novella to do that was commissioned by a listener. And that was the Zelazny story, The Graveyard Heart. And I was really grateful that we had those extra episodes to do. Yeah, I'm always glad to see what people want us to cover, what they think we might be able to speak to in terms of their own cultural landscape. It's a real pleasure and it's a real high point for me in in doing this podcast is these commissioned episodes. It's a real, I'm really grateful for our listeners who support us in that way, who are interested enough in what we have to say for us to talk about something that maybe they love. And it was a lot of fun to get all of the co-hosts on the network yeah. to show up on Elder Sign. It's the only show where that has happened. Though we've still not done it all together. Though we did on one Patreon episode this year. But uh, uh, someday we'll get all four of us to do something together. That'll probably have to be a Robert Block written Star Trek episode. I think that's that's the Venn diagram of all four of us. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. Well, Glenn, what were some of your favorite stories this year? What was maybe, let's just, let me just ask what your favorite story was this year. Yeah, we'll go back and forth here. My my absolute favorite story, and, and actually it'll be fun to maybe see if we have guessed each other's, but my absolute favorite story this year will probably surprise no one, least of all you, Brandon, was The Mask by Robert W. Chambers. Uh, dense, dense, uh, dense 19th century prose just, you know, sings to my heart. And uh, I just I just love it. I thought The Mask was extraordinarily well written. It was this absolutely immersive narrative. The emotions were so intense and they just leapt off the page and really spoke to me. I mean, this was a story that you know, it broke, broke my heart. It was a really tragic story. And also, I thought there was a lot going on uh, within that was uh, getting into sort of religious imagery. We we started, I think, at near the, we started near the end of our discussion of that story to, to crack into the sort of Arthurian mythos stuff that was going on in that story as well. Loved all of that. Also, I just love Paris. I was privileged to have lived in Paris for a very brief time. I say privileged, but you know, it was winter and the room I was renting didn't have heat. So I don't know how much of a privilege <laughs> it really was, but Paris is just a lovely city and I was feeling nostalgic for it. I guess it was also winter when we were doing that story. So maybe I was just feeling nostalgic for, uh, for that particular winter, but I loved everything about the mask. I loved that story as well. We were also able to talk about the concerns that Robert W. Chambers had, kind of mimicking on some level the development of Impressionism as an artistic style in response to photography. Uh, Robert W. Chambers' concerns about the way technology was impacting the arts, and that was another highlight of the story for me. That's a topic I, I find endlessly fascinating as a kind of literary theory guy on some levels. <laughs> uh, I, I enjoyed that. I also loved that story, and it made my short list. But I, I was trying not to pick stories that you would pick. Uh, and oh, so yeah. far, so far, we're doing well with that. My my favorite story this year uh, was Houses Under the Sea. I think that uh -huh. was my that was my top story. It, it's incredibly difficult for me to pick a second story. 
uh, or a story that is in second place. Um, but for me, Houses Under the Sea was just far and above uh, everything that we've read, maybe in the past two years. Though the Ligotti stories that we read uh, and, and the Ammonite Violin was also great. I just thought Houses Under the Sea was a, a masterful pastiche of kind of pulp writing. Uh, I love the style of the journalistic voice that Kiernan engages with. I loved, and one of my favorite passages is going to come from Houses Under the Sea, her uh, engagement with the sense of like unspeakable and unnameable horrors. It was a story that I thought was nearly perfect on every level. And uh, while I loved the mask, I didn't put it in my top two uh, because I figured you would probably be picking it <laughs> and give us an opportunity to talk about that. Right. I thought that you're right. I thought the mask might be the one story that we would both have on our on our top there. Houses Under the Sea was probably number three or number four for me, for sure. I mean, it's a beautifully, just gorgeously written story, it's just lyrical. And it is this amazing mashup of H.P. Lovecraft and Ernest Hemingway, but like written by Ursula Le Guin or something like that, which is like not a story that I think if someone pitch that to me i'd be like yeah i want to read that except that it's amazing and everyone should should read it yeah i think i have a little bit more of an affinity to you know contemporary stories or things written in the past 30 years uh than than you do glenn maybe that's no secret to people who've been listening <laughs> us to for for uh the past two years but i just adored that story the mask definitely was a contender for my top two, but I tried to pick a, uh, another surprising choice. What what would you also put on your top list, Glenn? Right. Well, so far, both stories that we have picked have had a, a common theme of of weird fiction about broken hearts, and uh, I'm going to continue that here with my 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 number two from this year, which was the the Graveyard Heart by Roger Zelazny, the episode that was uh, commissioned for us by a Patreon supporter, and. I think Zelazny is just a brilliant wordsmith. I really loved the way that the story was written. I loved the craft of it. There also was a lot of very disturbing imagery in this one, uh, but it's not just a cool story that is one part like sci-fi vampire story and one part uh, lesson against reading too much gothic and romantic literature. And so it really spoke to me on those levels as as well. I really, really loved this one. Well, that was my number two story uh, as well. I think we shared that. It, it was All really right. a tie between The Graveyard Heart, The Mask, and uh, and The Gunslinger. Though The Gunslinger for me was more so because it was an, it was an opportunity to critically engage with a story that I've read half a dozen times and returned to since I was 17 years old. Uh, and, and, and that was a real pleasure for me. Graveyard Heart was just so good. And being commissioned to read Zelazny's short fiction, I think, was a, a true highlight of the podcast this year for me. Uh, he's been on my list uh, to read, my to-be-read list, for a very long time. And having the opportunity to read him and engage with him through this podcast was such a pleasure. And The Graveyard Heart is such a great novella. And I'm, and I'm glad that we had the opportunity to cover it and talk about it. Yeah, we were commissioned to do three of his novellas. We've recorded all three of them. One, we haven't aired yet. We'll air that early next year. That's uh, For a Breath, I Terry. But we did also do the Keys to December. We just did that over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast because it it lined up so well with the Gene Wolfe novella tracking song. And I know when we did these all really back to back to back, Brandon, that you and I had talked off mic about sort of ranking those. And we both put, at the time anyway, Keys to December above the Graveyard heart. I still feel that way. Do you still feel that way? 
It's hard for me to say. I'd have to reread them both. I kind of skimmed through Graveyard Heart again as I was thinking about what my top stories really were. The Mask is is probably my true number two, but I was trying to outwit you and failed <laughs> <laughs> to do so. Well, I wanted to make sure that we we gave an honorable mention to Keys to December because I think that if uh, the brief were not favorite stories from Elder Sign, but favorite stories that weren't written by Gene Wolfe, uh, Keys to December would have made my list rather than Graveyard Heart, and I may have even may have even beaten out the mask for me there. So, uh, and we do have you know five times as many listeners to this show as we do to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. So I would just encourage uh, listeners to this show, uh, especially if you liked the Graveyard Heart, to, to pop over to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Podcast just to get even the two episodes we did on this story. Uh, it will totally be worth it. But uh, I want to think about our favorite stories overall. I want to compare these stories, the two stories that we've each picked, uh, to what we had selected last year. I guess what I'm saying is that I want to rank our four favorite stories so far. So, uh, Brandon, what's the sort of order that you would put the, the stories from this year and last year in? Well, last year I chose Purity and The Haunted Jarvie. Purity was by uh, Thomas Ligotti and the Haunted Jarvie was by William Hope Hodgson. I remember choosing the Haunted Jarvie because it allowed me to have a revelation or maybe an epiphany about the the roots of urban fantasy or what urban fantasy really is. But you know, looking back, I don't know as a story if I would still keep that on the list. So let's say Haunted Jarvie is number four, um, Graveyard Heart three. Houses Under the Sea 2, Purity number one. So that's my list. Purity, Houses Under the Sea, Graveyard Heart, Haunted RV. All right. So you kept your number one from last year as your number one, which is also what I have done. The Murders <laughs> in the Rue Morgue is still the top of my list. It is going to take a lot to unseat the Murders in the Rue Morgue from that. But I have placed The Mask as number two. Uh, and then The Repairer of Reputations, which was on my list from 2019, is number three. And then The Graveyard Heart at number four. So a lot of similarities in the way that we have uh, have ranked these here. Yeah, I mean, Purity to me just stands out as an excellent piece of horror fiction that that has stuck with me since I have read it. And Houses Under the Sea, I think, is the same. I think it's I think it's even a better story than the Ammonite violin. Uh, and as I said, the Haunted RV really works as a curiosity for me. And I and I and I suspect that we'll continue to move down the list as we as we. Uh, continue our podcast and, and and add two more next year to our favorites. Well, and we're going to be getting to do a lot more William Hope Hodgson in 2021 as well, but uh, uh, we'll table that for the, uh, the end of this show. So we've talked about our favorites. It's now time to talk about our least favorites. You know, we always pick two favorites. We're only going to pick one least favorite. I will say before we, we, before we pick specifics though, Brandon, I do want to say that I actually felt like this year in 2020, the average quality of stories was much higher than in 2019. Maybe not much higher, but it was at least a little bit higher than in 2019. Uh, the peaks maybe were a little bit different. But I actually maybe had some trouble coming up with a long short list here. There were really, for me, only two stories that are even in contention for being a, a least favorite. But uh, you're going to get first crack at this. So what was your least favorite story this year? Well, I just want to say first that I felt the same way. I don't, I don't think we read a truly dreadful story this year, uh, which was great. I mean, yes. I <laughs> particularly enjoy reading bad stories and then talking about them. Uh, but but for me this year, I th- the story that jumped to the top of the list was uh, Turgeon of Mir. That one really stuck out to me uh, as a story that I just found to be unsavory 
and unpleasant on so many levels, at least in my reading of it. And I, I, I just felt it didn't have much to recommend itself beyond our interest in how the dying earth genre formed some of Gene Wolfe's writing, uh, which is stuff we'll get to later on in the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Um, but I do want to see what Jack Vance does. His ethics interests me, his use of unlikable characters and maybe unmotivated characters surprised me. And uh, I haven't read too much more of the Dying Earth cycle. I haven't really read that much of Vance in general. And I am interested to continue on reading him. I will say as a caveat, way too much I haven't read of him to really form an opinion. But just in terms of the uh, way that these stories were grouped together this year, Turgeon of Mir stood out to me as, as my least favorite. What was yours, Glenn? Well, Turgeon of Mir was my second least favorite. So it was one of the two stories that made it onto my uh, my short list here. And, and I was prepared to bring it up if you did not, though I expected it was going to be the one that you picked because we really thought that this story was just a, a mess. And I'm still not sure what the plot of that story really was, right? There's a protagonist with no real motive. There's a side quest that takes up literally 15% of the page count. It's a side quest that doesn't really end up mattering, though, though I will say it was my favorite part of the story, actually. And then at the end, we even switch point of view character, None of all of which can be fine in a longer work, can be fine in a novel or a novella, but just doesn't work in a 10-page short story. And so I think we were left kind of confused about that. But I will say that I loved the wordsmithing of this, right? Vance wrote the heck out of single sentences and wrote the heck out of whole paragraphs. So it wasn't the writing, it was the storytelling that was the problem there. Though then we did also uh, bristle against the sort of cringy morality, the threats of sexual violence, the idea that the best way to do good in the world is to kill bad people, which we'll return to in just a moment. You know, those were some of the complaints that we had about that story. But we did get some interesting feedback about this story uh, when we released it. And I want to talk about that this is a kind of our uh, we'll pause here to revisit the story a little bit and this is some feedback that came from a, a listener who wrote to us on Twitter and he suggested that Trujan of Mir is actually a story about uh, what he calls inadequate god wizards uh, who are faced with the choice to judge their flawed creations as good or not we certainly didn't read it that way on our, our first thinking about this but uh, I wonder what you think of that reading of the story Brandon I hadn't uh, come across that. I did see on our forum one of our listeners talking about how th this story engages with the sort of collapse of morality uh, that took place maybe during and after World War II for many people, how the world uh, kind of flattened and became gray in with regard to a stance to ethics. The idea that this story is really about inadequate God wizards who are, uh, I think you said, unable to judge their own creation as good or evil is interesting, though it's not a well-developed theme in the story at all. And it begs the question, or maybe raises the question, of whether or not such a god should even engage in the act of creation in the first place. <laughs> and, and, and I think that that is still a core problem for me in this story. The unmotivated desire to create a vat woman combined with the only interactions we see between Turgeon of Mir and women being threats of sexual violence or being a cre an or creating an object of beauty to enjoy or to 
get pleasure from in some way. It was just too disturbing for me uh, in terms of the proximity of these ideas in the head of this character. It kind of allows for there to be some sublimated <laughs> maybe information <laughs> uh, that you can put together as a reader. And I just thought that this sort of story, this sort of question doesn't need to be raised. You need a reason. Is, is, is population dwindling? Is creating the right type of person going to save the, the dying earth in some way? There's no... There's nothing behind what Turgeon of Mir is doing other than to create this empty object of beauty, which I suppose, I, I suppose it could be a sort of critique of uh, the continental philosophy that conflates on some levels the idea of ethics and beauty, that living a beautiful life is is tantamount to living ethically or living well. And there certainly are some correlations between how living well can create beauty or sustain beauty in the world. And beauty is something that is, I think, very important to our experience of being in the world. But this story just had no beauty in it. It only had a, a kind of levels and degrees of corruption of beauty. So uh, I, I think it's an interesting thesis statement on uh, a way of engaging with this story. But but Turgeon of Mir is no Dr. Frankenstein. I will say that. <laughs> well, the, what you're pointing to, Brandon, I think is really taken up in The Graveyard Heart by Roger Zelazny, and I think done with a little more sophistication than what Vance was doing here. Though I, th I think, you know, Zelazny maybe went to that story with more of a program in mind than what Vance was doing here. You know, I was really intrigued by this comment as well. So I even reread the story to prepare to talk talk about. I didn't give you that opportunity because, you know, I'm a jerk with the outline. And, uh, <laughs> I didn't do that. But I read the story again last night because I really wanted to to find this there because I thought, yeah, wow, we, you know, we were hard on this story. We did not love it. And I want to love it, right? This is why we, we went to it and, and our Patreon supporters voted for it. I mean, it came in first on that ballot. So I went to it again, but I have to say, I just don't see this anywhere in the text, right? There's there's not really any point in this story where either Pandalume or Turjan actually judges to say us as, as good. That just never happens. Uh, Pandalumi does use the word flawed to describe her, uh, but but Tassane is not described as flawed at any point. In fact, that's kind of the point that she actually comes out perfect. But even with Tassane being deemed flawed by Pandalumi, at least, there's just never any deliberation about her worth or about her goodness from Pandalumi. He just he just says to Turgeon, yeah, she came out with her brain warped, and that's why she's the way she is. And we don't really get Pandalume, who is the one who created her, ever even really thinking about her again. Where we do get something that may resemble this is in the conversation between Tiseus and Tisane, where Tisane convinces Tiseus to be good, though, again, she doesn't decide that Tiseus is good the way that she is, that her flaws are good, or that she is good despite her flaws. And I think what really makes the this reading of the story, though, impossible is that the story itself ends with Turgeon observing this interaction between Tiseus and Tisane without being able to hear it. And when Tisane reaches Turgeon after this encounter, Turgeon assumes that Tiseus has hurt her, and he is prepared to go kill Tiseus. And this is only forestalled because Tiseus explains the, the situation. But Turgeon just accepts this without any kind of comment. He never 
he never says anything about deeming her to be good now, despite her flaws. There's just no place in the story where that type of judgment actually happens. But I will say that my impression of this comment was that this listener is a fan of these stories. So I suspect that the knowledge of the later stories is affecting the reading of this one. And we may end up revisiting this idea if our Patreon supporters do have us continue reading this Jack Vance stories. I really hope that we are able to revisit this question because I I found this story really lacking in terms of interrogating the question of the good at all. It is simply a, a point of view character moving through a fallen world not trying to to make it better it's kind of the the antithesis of the chivalric hero really he is acting purely out of self-interest and all of the characters that we meet in this story are acting out of self-interest they're subjugating others or or forcing others to do their will uh, out of a sense of their own self-interest rather than a sense of achieving a common good this story is and and I did find our listener who discussed this story on the forums uh, comment to be a little bit more convincing. This story is about a collapsed ethic more than about more than it is about uh, a kind of striving for some kind of ethic. And that does seem to be something that Vance is interested in. I, I, I know when we did this episode, I, I had mentioned that I was reading The Star King, which is the, the first book in his series called the, the Demon Princes, which also takes up a lot of this. And Vance saw military service in the Second World War. That was actually the context in which he first started writing these dying Earth stories. So I think that that's really probably wrapped up in his fiction and grappling with the Second World War and and everything that that war was about and what the world looked like afterwards. And so, yeah, I'm excited to read more of these stories and, and more of Vance in general across the, the network and, and dig into him more. I mean, Jack Vance is a massively important figure, maybe most important for his relationship with D&D, but still a massively important and influential figure. And I, I we need to read more of him for sure. So I do hope that we get to, to continue Yeah, I should say that this story didn't turn me off of reading Jack Vance. It made me more curious about him um, and and made me want to engage with just what he's doing as a storyteller because this, it, it, it takes a certain understanding, I think, to create something so unpleasant. That's a vague statement, but uh, I, I, I don't, I'd rather we move on from, from Turgeon of Mirror Glen. What was your least favorite story? That we right. Covered? You asked me, right. You asked me that question like 10 minutes ago and I basically refused to, to answer. <laughs> well, you picked as yours a, a story that is, uh, that has a beloved cult following and uh, I'm going to do the same uh, because I think for me, the story that I liked the least this year was the novella, The Blue Flame of Vengeance by Robert E. Howard. As we talked about in the the discussion episode that we did, uh, the morality at the core of Solomon Cain's actions just did not sit well with me. Again, it's this idea that the that it is morally okay to murder bad guys, to kill bad guys simply because they are bad, and you can be the person who decides who is bad or not yourself and operate outside the law and just murder people. I mean, basically, the story was murder porn, and it just didn't sit well with me to read that story. And and that that's really the reason it's my least favorite. That that was going to be my least favorite. What what saved the Blue Flame of Vengeance from being uh my least favorite story was I think the f- really fruitful conversation and discussion that we had of the story where we were able to unpack uh the 
trope of fridging women, um, which is something that uh, I think is is which is a real problem for many people in literature, maybe an obstacle to even enjoy certain forms of, of pulp literature. And I think our discussion of it led us to a point, and hopefully our listeners agree, to where maybe at a, at a certain point in our lives, we should stop engaging with the world through the lens that violence solves problems, or that with all these other issues that we might have, you know, like economic injustice, subjugation of lower and middle classes to elite classes, um, which is all in this story, all the problems that the, the main character in the story has don't really cause him to take action against anybody until a woman is in trouble. And to imagine a world in which the people we love or care about need to be harmed or endangered in order for us to take some sort of political or civic stance is a poor way of moving through the world. And and I didn't choose the Blue Flame of Vengeance because I thought our discussion of it uh, really opened up some of these issues in the type of storytelling that we're covering in general, um, particularly in Elder Sign. And, and for me, that was a really enjoyable conversation. It was for me too. And I am really looking forward to doing more Solomon Kane stories. I think as I cop to on that episode, I had randomly selected, foolishly randomly selected <laughs> the one Solomon Kane story where the bad guys are actual humans and not some kind of monster. Because I'm all about Solomon Kane as Puritan ninja uh, indiscriminately killing monsters, I suppose, right? But Howard was telling the same type of formulaic story, except that he wanted to tell a story about pirates, I guess, this time. And so it just didn't, didn't work for well, but I will be excited to go check out some other Solomon Kane stories. And Howard is a great wordsmith as well. So we, we need to do more Howard and we will do more Howard next year. I mean, there's so much, like I had a ton of output. We've, we've really done a very small percentage of it and I want to keep, keep going with Howard for sure. Right. I mean, the difference between killing demons and killing people is that when you're killing demons, you're, or in stories where you're killing demons and things like that, you're, abstracting the kind of flaws or problems or evils, uh, the mundane evils of people and, and saying that those things can be overcome by giving them a sort of uh, uh, body, by corporealizing them. But when you're just killing people, you're really saying that uh, people can't overcome their, their, their flaws, their, uh, their worser in impulses and instincts. And, and, I think to say that the response to that is to kill those people is a problem instead of saying like there are influences that create these sorts of conditions in people's minds or in their actions and attacking those is the right approach to being. Well, and we read these stories back to back. <laughs> this was the order in which you read them. It was a rough six weeks for us there, I guess. But uh, let's leave behind the least favorites, though I do always think that there's profit in talking about why we didn't like the stories we didn't like. And as always, we encourage people to come tell us why we're wrong about these stories on the forum or, or Reddit, or you can tweet at us if you want to do that as well. But let's move into talking about writing craft now. And let's, uh, let's just start with some of the favorite passages that we've picked out. We've each picked out two favorite passages. And Brandon, you get first crack at this one as well. So what was your absolute favorite passage from everything that we read this year? I hope this is, doesn't come as a great surprise, but when, when I looked at the outline for the episode, one passage jumped to mind immediately, 
And it's not from either of our favorite stories or least favorite stories of this year. It's from a solid middle pack story. Uh, it's from 252 Rue Le Prince. And as, as we talked about in the episode, Cram's style in that story jumped off the page for me. The style of writing. That's, the style that Cram used to write that story was something that I learned a lot from and just loved. It, it was just pleasurable for me to read. And there's one passage which I read on air in that episode uh, that I just think of when I think of my favorite passages of the year. So I'm going to read it again. It was 10 o'clock when we came to the street. A hot, dead wind drifted in great puffs through the city, and ragged masses of vapor swept the purple sky. An unsavory night altogether. One of those nights of hopeless lassitude when one feels, if one is at home, like doing nothing but drink mint juleps and smoke cigarettes. I love the specificity of language in this passage. It's not drink whiskey or brandy or cognac. It's mint juleps. Uh, the the description of the the vapor in the dead wind and into the hot air and... To me, this is just one of the best passages that we've read, uh, and it has that kind of pre-Hemingwayan, you know, journalistic style, that that pre-hard-boiled sensibility, uh, and I and I was delighted to find it in Cram's ghost story. Yeah, though it's kind of anticipating the hard-boiledness, right? I mean, it's it's about drinking mint juleps in Paris, which was really anticipating Hemingway for sure. Yeah, this was a line. This was a passage that appealed to both of us. This was on my short list as well. And uh, we're going to be talking about Cram again when we get to the themes and motifs segment. This story did have its issues, but um, in terms of style, it was not lacking. Glenn, what was your, I don't know, top passage or in your top two? Yeah, so my number one is the uh, mad scientist monologues from uh, the Lovecraft story from beyond. (laughs) I will not read them again here because they're quite long and also because I already got to perform them in front of a live audience, which is, you know, all I really want in life is to to, to be an actor in this business we call show. So I got to do that with these. But I do think that these monologues are just fantastic. I think Lovecraft really nailed this particular form of the villainous monologue. And he essentially wrote from beyond as a two-man stage play that's just organized around these villain monologues. And I loved every minute of it. And also, I'll just say here publicly on the air that if you're interested in putting on a two-person stage play of From Beyond, uh, please count me in. At least let me audition for it. I would love to do it. I I was recently watching a review of the two Lovecraft movies that Stuart Gordon did, uh, which was Reanimator and From Beyond on... uh, uh, YouTube channel called Red Letter Media. I don't know how many people are familiar with them. They're kind of fun uh, movie reviewers. And uh, they talked about From Beyond and said, basically, it's not a movie that I've seen, though. It has almost the exact same cast and crew as Reanimator, uh, which is its own insane, <laughs> over-the-top <laughs> kind of uh, really extra movie. And From Beyond apparently pushes even... The, those limits that we, we saw in Reanimator. Um, but that the original short story takes up about the first 10 minutes of the movie. It's the prologue to the movie. And then the rest of the movie are the characters essentially stuck in the house with these horrors from the machine. Um, I don't know if I'm going to watch the movie, but I'm definitely interested in watching the first 12 to 15 minutes of it. There are a lot of Lovecraftian films, some of them adaptations, some of them uh, 
maybe more of uh, inspired by, and uh, we should uh, we should make a point of doing some of those at some point. Those actually would make some great Patreon goals. And you know, we've watched Reanimator together with our our wives, and it was a really fun, like, <laughs> scary movie night. That was years ago, but yeah, we should totally revisit that. That would just be amazing to do. Well, well, what was your second favorite passage? Well, I'm going to pick something from Houses Under the Sea here, and and what jumped out to me about this passage and again i think this is uh something i read on air uh in our coverage of the episode what what jumped out to me was kiernan's use of language and her ability to describe what ends up in a lot of lovecraft or lovecraftian fiction or weird fiction inspired by lovecraft uh as the the unspeakable or unmentionable horror and i and i just thought this is the way you talk about something that you can't describe in weird fiction or horror fiction. So I'm going to read what she wrote. I took one step towards her then, or maybe two, and stopped. And at that moment, I experienced the sensation or sensations that mystery and horror writers, from Poe on down to Theo Angevine, have labored to convey. The almost painful prickling as the hairs on the back of my neck and along my arms and legs stood erect. The cold knot in the pit of my stomach. The goose across my grave, a loosening in my bowels and bladder, the tightening of my scrotum. My blood ran cold. Drag out all the cliches, but there's still nothing that comes within a mile of what I felt standing there, looking down at that girl, her looking up at me, the feeble light from the windows glinting off her eyes. I just love this bit of writing. This is an absolutely amazing way to describe the undescribable, and especially if we're thinking about Houses Under the Sea as Lovecraftian, as uh, having a place in the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, Kiernan, we have to think about the way that Kiernan is writing about the indescribable versus the way that Lovecraft does, where she's really digging deep into the emotional or really maybe the psychological experience of it or describing sensations and and I'm describing almost like visceral bodily sensations rather than trying to describe what is actually being seen what is actually being sensed and Lovecraft does this as well but he does it in a way where the strings are showing a lot more than what Kiernan does here I mean for one he just has his characters pass out a lot of the time or he will (laughs) simply say it was indescribable but then not really describe very much of anything and here we get the protagonists the narrators emotional and psychological experience and that really is what makes this story work it's it's a deeply subjective stance uh, that we are invited into in Houses Under the Sea, and that's what made it so good. She is not reporting on something, or the, or the main character of the story, this reporter, is not actually reporting on something as though he's writing an academic journal or is a journalist who's covering something. Uh, it's it's gonzo journalism, right? I mean that that's really the the in here is that this is taking that Lovecraftian objective reporting stance towards the unthinkable horror that his characters are encountering, and and taking the kind of Hunter S. Thompson approach is inserting the subjective experience into the into the reporting. It's you know 
it, it, gonzo is really the word gonzo journalism and i and i think that that's another brilliant innovation on horror on lovecraftian fiction and i think kiernan nails it in houses under the sea well glenn what's next on your list here what what's uh, another passage that you really loved that we read well, here is, is perhaps where I'm going to surprise you, Brandon, and, and maybe listeners, or maybe not. But the next passage I'm picking, this was my second favorite passage that we read all year, and it is actually from Turgeon of Mirror by Jack Vance. Uh, we spent, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes talking about how much we disliked that story and going <laughs> over it again. But yet, I think Vance is an absolutely brilliant wordsmith, and there is a, a passage, a descriptive passage in here in that still kind of haunts me and I think is something I'm never going to forget, even if I never read this story again. And uh, this one I will read into the microphone here. It was night in white-walled Cayenne and festival time. Orange lanterns floated in the air, moving as the breeze took them. From the balconies dangled flower chains and cages of blue fireflies. The streets surged with the wine-flushed populace, costumed in a multitude of bizarre modes. Here was a melantine bargeman. Here was a warrior of Valderan's Green Legion. Here, another of ancient times, wearing one of the old helmets. In a little cleared space, a garland and courtesan of the Koshik littoral danced the dance of the fourteen silken movements to the music of flutes. In the shadow of a balcony, a girl barbarian of East Almery embraced a man, blackened and in leather harness as a deodand of the forest. They were gay, these people of waning earth, feverishly merry, for infinite night was close at hand, when the red sun should finally flicker and go black." There's a lot that I love about this. I mean, one really is just how imagistic it is, just how much you can see of this uh, picture that Vance is painting with his words here, but also how expansive it makes the universe in this one paragraph that is just describing a festival. And it all serves to be a reality effect for the world that he is building. And then at the end of this, we actually finally get told something about this actually being a dying earth setting, which I think we all know going into it now and take for granted, but you easily could have read this story for the first time in the 1950s and not have known that that's what the story was going to be. And you're only getting that, you're only getting that information here in this description and it build and it builds to that information in an absolutely beautiful way that is describing how strange these cultures are, but also letting us know that they know that the planet is not long for the solar system, I guess would be the way to put that, that they are, that they are, that their civilization is about to collapse. So why not be feverishly merry? And that that is the setting that Turgeon of Mir and other characters we're going to meet are going to be operating in. And I actually wish that this paragraph had maybe appeared closer to the beginning in the story. It's a gorgeous paragraph. And as we talked about in, in our coverage of Turgeon of Mir, there are 50 stories you can write just for this <laughs> paragraph alone. You can imagine the, the fullness of this world, the use of naming and name places and um, generalizations or categorizations of people here forces you to think about the broader world beyond the city and the collapse of this civilization. And, and I agree with you. This is a really wonderful passage. It is an excellent example of world building that doesn't bog you down with too much information. It's the kind of experience you'd get in a, in a picaresque novel. But all of this culture clashing, rather than being the experience of the point of view character in, in, a, in a picaresque, is here in, found in the city during the, like, during the twilight of this civilization. And I, and I think it's phenomenal. I think it's a phenomenal use of language and world building. 
One of the things that we have naturally gravitated towards doing here and thinking about our favorite passages is looking at them as examples of good writing. So I think this is a good point to transition into the the second half of what we want to do with craft, which is to talk about writing lessons that we learned. I mean, we we are both trying to be writers, though spending way more time podcasting than writing these days, but still we are trying to be writers and are <laughs> reading these stories, at least in some part, I don't know, 30% of what we're doing is trying to learn how to write good. So Brandon, what's the lesson or our lesson anyway, that you learned from stories that we read this year or our story? With that cram story, man, I, I just think the style can cover a multitude of stin- sins. And, and I've really thought a lot about how style contributes to uh, storytelling and how you can maybe use style or trope engagement to cover uh, issues with narrative and still maybe tell an enjoyable story. Maybe not get, maybe tell the story first and, and, and deal with its problems later. Well, I think the embedded lesson there for both of us, Brandon, is just shut up and write or <laughs> just sit down and write. Uh, and when I say shut up, I guess I mean, uh, that's what we should be telling our inner critics, right? I think both you and I can uh, easily become paralyzed by our own inner self-critic such that we just don't get words on the page uh, in the the hour or so that we've uh, dedicated that day to getting some writing done. And so that, that might be the bigger lesson to extract from that, right? Because you can polish up a story later with with style, right? That it's But you've got to get something on the page in order to do that. And the cram story did feel like that was very much uh, sort of how how that story (laughs) operated. I want to talk about what I learned by reading the the Caitlin R. Kiernan story, Houses Under the Sea, which was, you know, which is a story that we have brought up uh, innumerable times already on this episode. This story really, this is a story that made me want to be a writer, but also made me feel like I'll never make it, right? This is a story that just said, I'm not this good. I can't do this. But the thing that really struck me when I went through it again and again and again is that actually the story that she's telling here is not really that interesting. It's it's certainly not interesting if it's told linearly uh, and also told without the emotional vulnerability of the the narrator. And so uh, I think where you went to Cram and said, hey, style matters, I'm seeing that here in the Kiernan story. But in particular, I'm actually seeing structure matters, right? That what Kiernan did was think up what the story is, the the Jacova Angevine story, and then tell that story from a different perspective entirely, right? So she already had to, at least in her mind, if not actually on the page somewhere, get that story out, birth that story into existence, and then didn't publish that story. She wrote a story around that one. She came and approached that story from a different angle and made it the story about a different person discovering the other story that she's actually written. I never write this way because I'm uh, what's called a pantser. I'm making it up as I go. And what I'm doing almost all the time is discovery writing. And I enjoy doing that. And so often I will say, yeah, that was fun. I'll send it, I'll send it out and maybe it will get published and maybe it won't. I mean, and I, you know, I've got like a 10% success rate. So, you know, <laughs> the odds are it won't. But the lesson here that I learned, I think, is that maybe if I thought about the stories a little bit more before I started writing, even if that's not necessarily the type of joy, the type of experience that I want to have doing the writing, the stories might be better and I might sell some more of them. Yeah, I have the opposite problem where I think way too much about the story I'm telling and then I can't write it, uh, which is which is probably just my <laughs> inexperience as a writer. But one thing I, I another thing that Kiernan does in the telling of this story is rely on pastiche, uh, which is the melding of genres. Uh, I mean, uh, Quentin Tarantino is kind of the the best example in our current culture of the use of pastiche as a uh, 
as a filmmaker, um, as a medium for telling the story, her reliance on kind of these pulp novels, on mystery stories, on journalism, and on weird fiction all blend together beautifully. And you can only really do that if you have the story you're telling down pat if you're circling in on the revelation rather than starting with it or trying to find it yourself as you write the story and i and i think that that is another um excellent lesson as uh as a as a writer i think caitlin kiernan is just unmatched uh maybe with the exception of thomas Ligotti in terms of contemporary craft in who we've covered so far absolutely we're going to be revisiting caitlin kiernan a lot. And and actually, Ligotti is someone we did not cover this year, which uh, maybe was a little bit criminal, but I'm sure that we'll get to him in 2021. Also coming in 2021, while we're talking about our own experience and our own attempts at being writers, uh, is at least one book from us, uh, potentially two new books from us. So we'll uh, be able to let listeners... Uh, we're hoping on uh, two, Glenn. We're, we're working <laughs> towards two. <laughs> working towards two. Yeah, no pressure, Brandon. But, uh, but uh, you know, we'll give listeners a chance to, uh, to turn the tables on us and uh, they can do a whole podcast episode of their own critiquing our stories. Or yeah, something. And, and those those will likely be in our shared universe. Though in a pinch, if I if I can't get this uh, science fiction story I've written published, I think we'll we'll try to self publish it under the Clay Temple brand, which would be exciting. Well, I think you're going to sell that story anyway, but uh, well, we'll save the cheerleading for for off mic. And uh, <laughs> uh, let's get into some some common themes and motifs here. This is the the last big segment that we're uh, we're going to do before we look forward to 2021 a little bit more. And I'm going to kick us off here by talking about uh, one of the big things that we saw in 2020, which is ghost stories and and haunted house stories. I am also going to include some stories that we did in 2019 as well, because I think it's a good time to take stock of this whole genre, the haunted house genre of weird fiction. And I'll just start by making a little catalog, making a little list of what are the ghost stories? What are the haunted house stories that we have covered? We've done Lost Hearts by M.R. James and also An Authentic Narrative of a Haunted House by Sheridan Le Fanu. We did both of those in 2019. But then this year, we did The Ebony Frame by Edith Nesbitt. We did A Psychical Invasion by Algernon Blackwood. It's criminal, actually, that that's the first time we're bringing up Algernon Blackwood. We're this far into the show. Uh, but then also we did Number 252, to Rumoncier Le Prince by Ralph Adams Cram, which we have talked about quite a bit. And thinking about these stories all together, there were really two common motifs that jumped out to me. And the first is that all but one of them involves religion. Ebony Frame, uh, Psychical Invasion, uh, Number 252, Monsieur Le Prince, or The Cram, maybe we'll just call it that, <laughs> all involve witchcraft. Uh, that the, the haunting of the house, maybe it's the ghost, maybe it's something else going on in the house, but the haunting of the house is wrapped up in witchcraft, some, uh, some bit of witchcraft from the past, some of it the very recent past, some of it from centuries previously. And then we have Lost Hearts, which is about paganism. And this is not really something that I would have ever expected. It's not something that I think of as being a part of the ghost story or the, the haunted house story tradition, but it is a commonality that four out of the five ghost stories that we've done have. And I was really struck by that. That's a really fascinating insight. I think that the direction that many ghost stories tend to go in um, that we read or encounter today are the equivalent of a detective story, right? So you have somebody who can overcome or stop a haunting or resolve the 
the spirit's unrest by solving the mystery of their death or uncovering something about the past or, you know, in the case of supernatural, burning the bones <laughs> and salting them. Um, and, and it's fascinating to me. I was thinking about this as you were talking about this insight that you have, that ghosts are the result of other people's evil doing, not necessarily the result of uh, a spirit who has unresolved business. So I think there's there's been a real change in the way we tell ghost stories based on the ones we've seen so far in on Elder Side. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And the, the other thing that I, I noticed here when I was just trying to take stock of all of these stories together is a sense of the old versus the new. We've got old buildings. The the Lefanu story is an old building masquerading as a new one, like almost trying to trick people. And then we've got a psychical invasion by Algernon Blackwood. And then we've got the Cram story, which are taking place both in an old house that is surrounded by new construction as things have happened either in London or in Paris, where old buildings have been torn down and new ones have been built up. That's really Paris. And in the case of London, it's that this used to be a rural or at least an ex- urban place that has now been surrounded by new urban development, by urban sprawl. And then in the ebony frame, we've got old furniture that's been hidden away in the the attic, or, or at least what's called the, the lumber room. I suppose it wasn't necessarily the attic that was brought out. And it's the bringing out of this old stuff and putting it in this new context is what causes the, the trouble there. And so to, to me, it looked like the real fear and anxiety that these weird fiction stories have in common is really about creating the industrial world, which is going on throughout the 19th century and into the, the 20th century, but really going on in the 19th century and the early 20th century. And this is the world that we live in. We live in the industrial world. And so we tend to forget, I think, how radical the creation of that world was at the time. It's really the second most radical thing that humans have ever done collectively uh, in terms of, of societies and institutions, right? The first being the invention of civilization to begin with. And the industrial revolution, we should really think of as being the complete reinvention of civilization. And so we've got these writers that are in it that are writing these ghost stories in which they, they are expressing, maybe subconsciously, maybe intentionally, a real concern about the detritus of the past still existing in this new world that they've created, that they didn't tear down all the buildings, they left some of them up? Uh, or what did we what did we hide away in our new home that we could have just gotten rid of that maybe we should have recycled or repurposed or gotten rid of? But there is also then this concern about the eradicated past actually coming back to, to haunt them. And, and so those were the real things that I saw in these, these ghost stories. That's a brilliant insight. And I, and I wonder if there's not a sort of combined anxiety with this sense of undeserved success or wealth that is also going into these stories. There's uh, inheritances where people who are already sort of leeches on society uh, becoming wealthy suddenly through the inheritance of property or money. There's the anxiety of the writer in the John Silent story, a psychical invasion about whether or not he's going to be able to maintain his success, whether or not this he can continue to afford the sort of lifestyle that he's created through his own creativity. Uh, and, and, and then maybe also the question of where what we're now relying on in order to designate success or wealth, you know, a new pro being able to buy a new property, cheap materials and goods, 
the invisible labor that creates this sort of stuff. This anxiety about undeserved success or wealth, I think, also overlaps this sense, this concern about the eradicated past coming back and, and taking it away from us. And maybe that's why we have these these burned down houses as resolutions in some of these stories as well. Yes, definitely. And and a psychical invasion is actually probably a great transition into what you're going to talk about, which is chivalric heroes, because John Silence, well, one, he is one of these chivalric heroes, but he is using the inherited wealth that he has to right wrongs, both social and supernatural. And that's what makes him so heroic in this type of ghost story that has these concerns. Really looking forward to reading more John Silence stories in the future. But uh, let's move into talking about chivalric heroes, Brandon. Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to read more John Silence stories as well and, and prove my suspicion that Algernon Blackwood was somehow reading Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll work on that, uh, developing that throughout the, the years as we cover more John Silence stories. But you're right, chivalric heroes is another big topic, a big theme uh, and motif in the stories we read this year, uh, especially as we kind of got more into the pulp age of uh, literature, of publishing, and the pulp mentality of the writers we read. You know, the first instance of the chivalric hero that showed up this year was in The Goddess of Death, the William Hope Hodgson story. Uh, we saw it again in A Psychical Invasion, big part of a blue f- the Blue Flame of Vengeance. Uh, maybe you could say it's even in the Erishkigal working. Um, and if you squint a little, I think you can also see it in Houses Under the Sea, the Gunslinger is, of course, pure chivalric romance as well. And and what we mean when we talk about chivalric heroes is really just this. It's, it's an update of the trope of the errant knight. And this is a knight who wanders around uh, carrying with them the values of the kingdom or the king. And, and they bring those values to bear on the situations and adventures that they encounter. You, you could also see like... Aragorn is a great example of this, sort of a, a, a lordless thane who was also his own lord. Uh, this is Aragorn is an example of kind of moving into this modern and postmodern anxiety around heroism. Um, but in errant night tales, the, the king may be gone or dead or the kingdom may be in ruin. The knight has these old ways, these old virtues as his guide. And the new ways, whatever is new, has brought ruin in some way to the kingdom. Maybe it's an evil ruler. Maybe it's something outside the kingdom that is corrupting people's virtues or values. Or maybe it's the knight traveling to the frontiers of the kingdom, uh, who and these people haven't learned entirely of what the kingdom way is. And we can see throughout the stories we read this year, how the idea of the chivalric hero has changed, uh, especially if we look at the differences between the goddess of death and, say, the gunslinger, or maybe even houses under the sea. In the goddess of death, there's this assumption that what has gone wrong isn't something inherent to the kingdom itself or its values, but that something has entered into the kingdom and is corrupting it. It's breaking the norms. It's stopping people's ability to live in the kingdom, the way the kingdom wishes them to live. Uh, in the psychical invasion, this is, you know, Hinduism. This is uh, the the result of colonialism and, imperi- and imperialism that seems to rely on this idea that England uh, 
is is right, has a right to rule, and can export its culture, but no culture should really be imported. It's a danger and a corruption for people to experience the the cultures that they are, in a sense, corrupting themselves by the use of imperial power. But this is also like Beowulf, right? The stranger comes to town. There's a problem that the people there who are living with the monster or whatever cannot solve. Uh, and the stranger, because they're an outsider, but because they also hold the right values, can overcome it. The kingdom, though, in something like goddess of death and even in the cyclical invasion is intact it's about restoring what is right but in houses under the sea and gunslinger there there is no kingdom really the characters of these stories have the problem that existentialism or, or really maybe even absurdism talks about of having to cobble together their own values without the reinforcement from the communities that they used to participate in that they used to participate in that generated those values. And so it wears on them. They're seeking for justice or vengeance or setting things right is based entirely on their ability to act of their own volition, of being able to remain virtuous on some level. And the strain of that causes them to fail. And maybe these characters are right about the way things ought to be. But they're outnumbered. And what outnumbers them really is the fact that all the buttresses and supports for how things ought to be have failed in some capacity. And this is really a crucial element of postmodernism or even modernism as, as literary periods. It's an acknowledgement that the institutions have failed and a recognition that living by grand narratives or meta narratives is a choice you can make not something that is inherent to the community that you participate in. It's not passed down and reinforced necessarily by some authority. And so that leaves you to be your own authority. And the burden of being that authority falls entirely to you alone. So in, in other words, in these updated chivalric hero tales, the danger doesn't come from something outside the kingdom that's infiltrating it and corrupting it, but rather by being virtuous or trying to be, by the heroes trying to be virtuous, you are the thing that is corrupting and infiltrating this new order. And and I and I think you can even find elements of this, these ideas in in China Mieville's foundations as well. And uh, you know, I really enjoyed watching and observing how the idea of the chivalric hero has changed uh, as our assumptions about the kind of world we live in has changed over the periods that we read stories in uh, this year on Elderside. I really appreciate the contrast that you're drawing between the the, the two chivalric heroes uh, or the two chivalric stories that we get from imperialist Britain, right? The 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 Hodgson story and the the Blackwood story that sort of contrasts there with then what we're getting in the late 20th century United States. Although uh, Kiernan, though she lives in America, is, I think was actually born in the Republic of Ireland. But in either case, right? There's a real contrast there between this uh, what we think the world is. Is the the optimism what we think our place in the world is and and Kiernan's story in particular I mean telling us the story of this this journalist who's uh, at least sometimes a war reporter who's come back from trying to who's who's been really devastated by trying to report on the war on terror 
has to come home again and finds that the world just and finds that home just isn't right for him. This is very much at the heart of the hard-boiled detective story. Uh, Hammett in particular, Chandler as well, though I think especially Hammett, who himself had a similar experience with the, the First World War. And Kiernan, I think, does an amazing job of updating that and also turning that into a really awesome, weird fiction Cthulhu mythos story. But something that I think really jumped out to me, though, in thinking about comparisons between these two sort of modes of doing the chivalric hero is the experience that John Silence has in the, what we'll just call the East, I guess, and what the narrator of Houses Under the Sea does as well, right? John Silence has gone to India and maybe other places to learn mysticism, to get experience doing marijuana in different ways and different strands of marijuana <laughs> that like opens up the world to him, that he has learned from the the mystical tradition of the mysterious East and brought that home with him. And it's allowing him to solve some of the, the problems that modern people, that high modern people are unable to solve on their own. Now, though all of that filtered through very clear sense that he is both uh, Kierkegaard's hero, John Silence, and also St. Francis. But then the, the narrator of Houses Under the Sea has a similar experience in that he goes to Afghanistan and, and Pakistan, both on the, the Indian subcontinent, and comes back broken from that experience and just wants to sit around in a friend's apartment and be drunk and ends up. I think at least our reading of the story committing suicide at the end by, by walking into the, the ocean. Right. It is that is, it is that burden of being alienated from uh, a meta narrative of a grand narrative that forms a worldview that you can share with others. It's the ability to really act as an archivist of knowledge and ethics that leave you exhausted and alienated from the world. And, and this is something that uh, became a big theme of modernism as a literary movement. Uh, and it's also a, a, a theme I, I love in uh, the postmodernists as well. And, and it's also a big part of existentialism as an idea that the, the burden of choice is, is alienating. It's self-alienating. And it's almost too large of a responsibility to carry by yourself. But we live in a world, or maybe we did live in a world, I would argue that the world has maybe changed since these ideas have, uh, have come to bear on them, that it is that, that burden of, of choice, of endless choice, that is not necessarily a, a gift, that that total self-responsibility and the call to act in any way relies entirely on you and your own volition and that you know you've made the choice in picking and choosing certain values or ethics leaves you feeling like you're living in a world that is corrupt and you can't turn it to right and and this is this is i think something uh that i think we'll see more of as we read more 20th century uh and late 20th century fiction and horror tales well now that we've kind of been predicting about the sorts of themes we'll see next year in our <laughs> podcast. Let's talk about what we're going to be doing in 2021. 
Yeah, before we look ahead to 2021, I, I want to take an opportunity here to thank everyone, every one of you for absolutely huge support in 2020, uh, writing reviews, sharing us, uh, retweeting, uh, in particular, people who participated in the two contests that we had. This greatly expanded our exposure and our listenership, and we're so grateful that you did that. Also, I always want to say a huge thanks to our forum participants or people who tweeted comments at us. We, we engaged with some of that here in this episode, and of course, we love doing that on the forum, on Reddit, uh, wherever you want to talk to us. It's a huge part of what we love doing about the show. And we especially have to thank our patrons. Without our Patreon support, the show would not be possible. So thank you to all of you for a really awesome 2020. Yeah, I just want to echo your thanks here, Glenn. The reviews help us out so much. Uh, You know, if you can't support us monetarily through Patreon, consider taking 10 minutes and writing a review of our shows that you listen to on the network if you haven't done so already. It really gets the word out. Tell friends about us. Tell people who you think might be interested in what we're covering. Spread the word. That's how we grow. We don't really do advertising. um, And we are so grateful for those of you who have been able to support us financially, either through your monthly contribution on Patreon or uh, commissioning stories for us to tell. It's a real pleasure of ours to be able to continue to keep the lights on at Clay Temple Studio and do these shows for you. Well, let's talk about what we're going to be doing in 2021. So last year at this time, I said 2020 is going to be the year of the novella. And wow, it was the year of the novella for sure. So we're going to return to more short stories for 2021. There won't be no novellas, but there will be fewer of them. Uh, I was a little surprised when I was taking stock of what we had done in 2020 to realize that we only covered 18 stories because we did so many novellas. So I'd like us to get a little more variety again next year. Of course, That's depending entirely on how much control you and I have over what goes on the ballots, Brandon, because we have now opened up this nomination scheme where already we have had most ballots somewhere between 20 to 30 percent of what's been on them has actually been listener chosen. I think that that is going to go up now that we are uh, opening up the the access to nominations by uh, selling them directly. So we'll see how that works out. Uh, We do also know already that we've got a couple of commissioned episodes. Actually, I say a couple, but I mean that in a Chicago sense in which a couple means anywhere from three to seven and never two. Uh, So we have at least three (laughs) commissioned episodes coming up in early 2021. We're going to be doing our very first movie. Uh, That is The Lighthouse. Uh, We're going to have a lot of fun with that. We're also going to do an entire novel in just two episodes. We're going to be covering The House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson. And then we've also got one more Roger Zelazny novella to air as well. But then also looking ahead, thinking about our Patreon goals. And we hit two of them this year, which was fantastic. But we are looking ahead to hopefully hitting our goal of being able to do At the Mountains of Madness as a special series on Patreon, the the H.P. Lovecraft novel. It would be amazing to do that. And maybe also The Call of Cthulhu as well, if we do get to 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts. So could be an awful lot of long-form H.P. Lovecraft in store for us in 2021. I couldn't be more excited to hit the goal of covering In the Mountains of Madness. That will lead into several uh, tertiary conversations about (laughs) film and other sorts of things. I'm really excited to cover that story. I am too. I mean, I don't generally root for things on the polls, but as I saw that that was winning, I, I, I was pretty excited. It wasn't what I expected to win, but but once once we knew that's what we were going to do if we hit that goal, I, I got really excited about it. So those are our uh, hopes and dreams for 2021, and I think that is going to do it for this episode and this year then. I'm Glenn McDorman. 
And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Please head on over to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit and let us know what you thought about what we covered in 2020. What were your favorite stories and your favorite passages? Why were all of our choices here today completely wrong? We would love to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to get some listener. I'd love to get some audience uh, input on what we talked about today. We covered a lot of ground and, and we're able to reflect on the past year and we're done with 2020. So as always, the network is going to take a break for the holidays. Elder Sign will be back on January 12th with The Demon Lover by Shirley Jackson. In the meantime, we'd love it if you checked out some of our other shows, if you haven't already. The holiday break is a great time, great opportunity to read Gene Wolfe's The Fifth Head of Cerberus and binge the 40 episodes we did on it, especially <laughs> if you're traveling uh, to see your family or spending any time in the car. Uh, we did a lot of work on that, and, and we're really proud of those episodes uh, and our coverage of Fifth Head of Cerberus. It'll, it's a great entry point into Gene Wolfe if you're not familiar with him. And we'd love it if you added your voice to the uh, chorus of people who disagree with us and are reading up those stories. <laughs> we'd love you for you to make your own judgments as well. Uh, th- that That is just uh, going... I think we're always going to be recommending our, our coverage of Fifth Head uh, just to get people into Gene Wolfe and into people who have done so much work for the Gene Wolfe community like Mark Aramini and and, uh, and other academics as well. Glenn has now covered nine books on ATAS as well. Uh, ATAS is Glenn's speculative fiction book club podcast. He's read and reviewed books by Shirley Jackson, Kim Stanley Robinson, and Guy Gavriel Kay. Absolutely take time to check that out. It's a great podcast, uh, short, short, much shorter than anything we cover <laughs> on Elder Sign or the Gene Wolfe Literary <laughs> Podcast, but also it's designed to introduce you to books you've maybe been thinking about reading. Yeah, also coming up very soon, or actually possibly already released a day or two ago, is the uh, the novel Ship of Fools by Richard Paul Russo, which is Lovecraftian horror in space. Uh, and that is an episode that you joined me on, Brandon. And so not not right. only a solo show. And in fact, actually, that was a pretty long episode. It's a different format than ATAS normally does. But I think but I think listeners to Elder Sign will want to check that one out as well. It is also a great time to join us on Patreon as well, because you will be just in time for our annual Connie Willis SF Christmas story episode. We love doing those stories. It's become a real tradition here, something I look forward to doing every year. We'd also love to start 2021 off with a whole bunch of extra work to do because we have, in fact, hit our goal of covering at the Mountains of Madness. So please do join us on Patreon if you can. But until next year, until 2021, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.